Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I uh, want to thank the folks here who are gathered in room 2425 in person. And as, as I say, we all missed you very much, and we're so grateful that you're back. want to thank our friends who are learning with us on the live stream as well. Um, so we're going to start with a couple of th- blessings. This is a blessing for learning Torah. And then, Elias, if you can lead us in the Shehech because to be together again is a truly a Shehech moment. So first, the blessing for Torah. And my dear friends who are here back, we're back with the laminated sheets. We haven't said this since March of 2020. And we all rise for Shakhiyanu. Okay, so obviously this is the first time that we're doing this, so I think this is the idea, and of course we're... uh, Hashem has made the Jewish people very generous with their capacity for feedback, so you'll let us know if this works or not. Um, But I think the basic move here is that we're going to be in dialogue, uh, the five of us, on these issues until 9.10, and then every class at 9.10, they're going to sing a song that somehow connects to the content of what we've been talking about. And then they're going to go off to be with the Bar Mitzvah and Bat Mitzvah families. And then I'm going to continue the dialogue with you from 9.15 till 9.45. So the first half hour or so is us talking and we're engaging the issues, a song, then my colleagues leave, and then we continue the conversation in person. So the idea of this whole space is to talk about the stuff that matters. And uh, to me, there is no issue that matters more than the uh, problem of anti-Zionism, especially among our younger generation, that Danny Gordas wrote about. Um, And I just want to, um, a picture is worth a thousand words. If you look in the article that you have on page uh, four of the article, you see our children. I mean, these are our children. and we are the Jewish future, young Jews, return the birthright, return the birthright. And then on the blue tzedakah box that nurtured the dreams of a return to Zion, you have the stones that we put on monuments for things that are dead, right? When you do an unveiling service for your beloved parents or grandparents, uh, you, 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 you put a stone on the stone, and they're putting a stone on the dream of, of a Jewish state. Um, and Danny talks about it. So I first want to just uh, – so that is – an urgent problem. I think, for my money, that's the most urgent problem, to understand that, where is that coming from, and to understand how do we change uh, the dynamic. 
um, and how do we nurture a deep, deep, deep love of Israel, um, especially always, but especially in the 75th year. So um, I'm going to start with my beloved colleagues. What did you think of Danny's article? What did you think of it? Uh, what, what did you see as his diagnosis? What did you see uh, as his prescription? And uh, do you agree with him? Do you like what he had to say? Michelle. Um, so I think, you know, one of the amazing things about Rabbi Danny Gordis is he's never afraid to say what he actually thinks. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you will not be unclear how he feels. And, and I, I actually thought it's important because so often today in our landscape, we do hedge our words and we try to put things, you know, over here and not to offend or not to sort of inflame. Right. And instead, he's, he's really speaking exactly what he sees, which is, as you so beautifully described, just really a generational rift right. when it comes to Israel. Um, and for me, he raised um, a question in my mind because I remember when I was in college myself, and I would say, you know, I believe so strongly in women's rights. Women should be able to do everything that a man should do. Our bodies should be protected. Our freedom should be protected. Our ability to work and be held in esteem should be protected. But I'm not a feminist, right? <laughs> and, and to me, I think there is a similar thing going on with Zionism, where there is a population of young people who would say, I believe that Jews should have some place, some homeland, some right there, but I'm not a Zionist. And to me, you know, he brings up the farthest of the, of the right of the right of the right, or I guess of the left of the left of the left right. here with the anti-Zionists. But I, I actually think that in a sense, he's, he's building up a kind of straw man because far fewer people in, even in our young generation, are anti-Zionist than are, you know, the general scope of our 20 and 30-somethings. And, Eliza, you can speak to this, who would say, I'm not a Zionist. And I think there are sort of two levels of a problem. Right. I want to double-click there because um, it's, not, it's not just Jews in general, 20s and 30s, but indeed he, he, he observes that this phenomenon happens in particular with rabbinical students. So I, I just want to read this. And then, Aliza, I want to ask you, um, because you work so closely with this age group, where this is coming from. But I'm, I'm just quoting. I've also been meeting with some rabbinical students while I'm here. They go to all kinds of schools on both coasts and are from all over the country. What have they wanted to speak about? They want to share how hard it is to be a Zionist in rabbinical schools today. They want to talk about how most of their classmates self-define either as non-Zionist or anti-Zionist and how they, the Zionists, are worried that they're going to lose friends and get this, possibly lose jobs, if they continue to make it known that they endorse the idea of a Jewish state, even if they're critical of many of its policies, as are many Israelis. So um, I guess my question is, where, where is that coming from? Pressure at all. Um, so I think, and I just want to be—I want to be clear that I'm, I'm not here representing all young people. Um, I, I'm not taking that on. Be uh, honest with us. So. <laughs> but I, I do. There are a couple things I do want to say, which is that I think that, you know, I, I think back to what my my great grandmother 
she was like a lifetime member of Hadassah and she she did bake sales and she did like fundraisers and she spent like all of her volunteer energy was about raising money for the Jewish state and that was like her life's dream and mission and and she was so proud of it and that was just everybody did that and there was just love and there was just enthusiasm and there was joy and I think that um, that that was a real a real response to the trauma that we had experienced was just like we all banded together and we all worked to create this Jewish state. And within that, because our people were so traumatized, we didn't really have bandwidth to hear any thoughtful critique. And so for a long time, I think that young people who had criticism for the state of Israel really felt like they were, they, they were not welcome. Their criticism was not welcome. Their thoughts were not welcome. That the, the project was rah-rah Israel or, or, you're, or you're out. And I think what we're getting is we're seeing the result of that, which is young people who say the option is, is Zionist. Either you are 100% in support of Israel as it is today, no questions, or you are anti-Zionist or just, you know, apathetic. And, and I think that we're, we're getting in some ways a, a consequence of our inability to build thoughtful conversation on all sides of the issue. And, and so I do see this, you know, I, sh- I share with Danny this, this sense that it's a, it's a crisis point. And a lot of the young people that, that I see and work with are are deeply concerned and, and have these narratives that I find deeply disturbing and problematic uh, around Israel. And I think that our, our challenge is how to engage that in a way that builds conversation and doesn't shut people down and doesn't create this thing that you're either for or against. So I just want to understand what you're saying. What I, what I hear you saying is that um, today Zionism has become something of a loyalty test. Kind of, you have to swear allegiance to the oath of "I'm a pro-Zionist," um, and that 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 has, in some sense, um, uh, uh, taken the air out of the conversation uh, about Israel and about moral concerns. And if if you're a young person and you have moral concerns or legitimate moral concerns, uh, there's no there's no space, you know, in institutional Judaism. There's no space at you know Temple Emanuel. There's no space in in organized Jewish community, Federation Judaism in America, to articulate that. And so uh, they're saying no to that, and they're, and they're becoming alternative. Um, and that's your diagnosis. It's become Yeah, and not just for anti-Zionists, for people that have concerns, also for Zionists, also for people, right. like, because it's so polarized, if you're a supporter of Israel, it feels like you also can't offer thoughtful critique or right. have a conversation because you have to be so staunchly protective of Israel. Right. So what do you see, um, and then Elias, you're next, uh, what do you see as Danny's diagnosis, uh, as his prescription, and do you agree with it? So it's interesting. I feel like Danny's saying that we as a community, we have to have boundaries. And in some ways, it's like there's, there's just bad behavior when it comes to Israel. And like if you're an anti-Zionist, that's just bad behavior that cannot be tolerated. We just have to say no. Um, and I don't, I don't know how that, how that will shake out. I don't know, you know. We're at the point where that's just a reality. So I'm not sure that us being like, well, that's not okay is going to really make that much of a difference, though I agree with him that it's not okay. So one last question for you, and then you're off the hot seat, and then Elias. I want to imagine that you are uh, on the admissions committee of Hebrew College because you're, you know, it's most noted alum. uh, And you are, that's objectively true. uh, And uh, uh, statement of love and objectively true. Uh, and you're on the admissions committee, and you 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 have a candidate um, who says uh, some of the crazy hypo- hypothetical things that Danny says uh, that um, you know I'm not pro monogamy, 
so you would not allow them in. And uh, these are the points that Danny makes at the end. Or I'm pro-idolatry. I, I don't really believe in monotheism. You wouldn't let them in. Or uh, blacks have had a perfectly fair and easy and just in America. There's no issue with race. You wouldn't, you wouldn't let them in. Um, this candidate, though, now the hypothetical, says uh, I'm, I'm anti-Zionist or I'm not a Zionist. Um, would you, I mean, if you take Danny's description, literally, right, he would say that's, that's like I'm not for monotheism or I'm not for monogamy, I'm not for the state of Israel, and no, that's a boundary issue. Would you say no to that candidate, or what would you do if you're on the admissions committee? Well, Hebrew College has a policy that they do not admit anyone who is ant- actively anti-Zionist. So if I'm following Hebrew College policy, that's a no-brainer. But I think your question is deeper. It's like if I was setting if I was setting the admission standards, right. would I would I admit? And and I, the truth is, I don't I don't know. I think that the more that we push people to the outsides, the the less likely we are to be able to have conversations. And I think rabbinical school is five years of really intensive learning. And if you're if anyone's going to be able to grow and and expand, I think rabbinical school would do that. Um, you know, it's a challenge. I think also the the issues that he outlined. It's so interesting because so many of these are are generational issues, and the way that we approach them. Like, um, I know that that for many people, Polly and I just want to be very clear. I'm not I'm not expressing an opinion on this. I am just simply representing that for many young people, monogamy isn't necessarily the be all and the end all, and that's a gener- that's a generational shift, and and so. There's so much judgment about that. And, and I will tell you that on rabbinic listservs, there are all these conversations about how you engage with that and how do you support people and should, you know. It, so I think the challenge that we have, it's not just an Israel challenge. It's that how do we engage people and, and see people and support people and build cohesive community uh, where we don't just say, like, okay, you're out. Like, that's it. You, I can't talk to you anymore. We're not engaging anymore. Thank you, Lisa. Elias, your thoughts. Anybody from the board here listening to what <laughs> Lisa just said? Oops. Uh, several points I want to make. Uh, several things. Um, Danny Gordy's article to me is amazing. Amazing. He speaks my language direct and strong. And uh, that's number one. Second, Obviously, we are in America, but there is a third diaspora, or second diaspora, which is the three million Jews that live around the world that don't live in Israel or America. The sentiment of anti-Zionist, anti-Zionist is non-existent, non-existent at all. In, in those groups? Three million people outside America or Israel didn't even cross their minds to be anti-Zionist because of the realities that each one of them live in their own country where Jews are not accepted. So there is something cultural about how wonderful, how generous and fantastic America has been to the Jewish people that creates this type of, of thoughts. Wow. Number one. Could Number you go two. deeper? What does that mean? The fact that Puto and Buenos Aires, Jews in Buenos Aires, are not anti-Zionist? Say more. What, is, what do we learn well, from it, that? Well, it's, it's clear. The, the, you I don't know if you know I'm from Argentina. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so there has been in the last 30 years two bombs in Argentina, two big bombings that killed in the embassy and the Jewish community center. And until now, nobody knows who did it. So that means that the government and everybody who took care of the cases didn't want the 
to, to this, the truth to be, you know, in the surface. That means that there is systemic anti-Semitism. So if the Jewish people think, I'm not welcome here, I'm not comfortable, where am I going to go? Israel, that's it. It's like, there is no other place in the world. I mean, maybe America, like me. But, but it's, you know, that sentiment doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. It didn't even cross their mind. You, you can criticize Israel. You can advocate for the Palestinian rights. But the idea that Jews don't have the right to exist in their own land, that for thousands of years was our home and also our, in our prayers and our songs and everything. Anyways, I like one paragraph of, of Shabbatai's, um, of Danny Gordes about Shabbatai's V. I don't know if you, that is amazing. I mean, the guy is, is harsh and cruel. It's like, you know, maybe you can tell more to everybody, but it's about, you know, Shabbatai's V, the false right. Mashiach, and that yeah. they were forgotten in history. Some of them committed suicide. Oh, my God, that was epic. Anyways, comparing that to the to rabbinical students, and the scary part to me, just to, to, fin to finish, these students of rabbinical schools, as we know, are going to lead congregations in the future. Okay? They are going to be the leaders for the next 30 years of congregations, and that is the scary part. Right. So we're going to pivot in a minute to, uh, to Yehuda Kritzer's. I, I understand. Yeah, yeah. I've done this, so I've, I've done this before, Michelle. Thank you. <laughs> I've done this before. So we're going to pivot in a minute to Yehuda, but, um, but Lord Neston, I wanted your take on, um, on, you, on uh, Danny. I'm just amazed how in just a few generations people have totally forgotten history. Um, you think about the fact, as Goliath pointed out, you know, we've been praying for, uh, for 2,000 years. You know, we have Tartikva. We've been praying for 2,000 years. We can go back to our homeland, a place where we can be safe. And... And even uh, even the history of you know of recent anti-Semitism across the world and how that affects uh, how that affects uh, you know all of us um, that if we have a generation in America of young Jews who have absolutely no sense of history, then it's doomed to repeat itself. In other words, um, if there's a continual um, move towards not only, you know, uh, not, uh, move towards anti-Semitism amongst, uh, anti-Zionism amongst uh, young American Jews, and that we are not supporting the state of Israel, then this could be, it's exactly, um, as you said many times, it's, uh, it's the year 70 again. It's the year 70 again. Okay, and so. And that's really frightening. Okay, so I want to just close off Danny Gordas by asking a simple question to each of you real quick-like, and then we're going to pivot to Yehuda Kurtzer. Take a look again, folks, at the picture on page four. These are our children. V'anachnu dorshin tzedek. We are the Jewish future, and they're, uh, so it's the inversion of all symbolism, as you can see. You know, the chatan kala, chupa, uh, uh, that, that we think about on, on, uh, you know, on uh, Simchat Torah, uh, they're, they're dancing for the end of Israel, okay? And these are our children. Um, not all of our children are like this, but some of our children are like this. Um, and here's my question to you before we pivot to you, the Kritzer. Um, you are facing this group. Like, they're, they're in the Gan Chapel with you, okay? What's your core message in a sentence? If you had to give a core message to this group, what would your core message to this group be? Elias? 
I would look at them and I would say, Shabbatai Tzvi. Aliza. No, wait, wait, wait. I was no. just, just, just joking. Um, I would say to them, be more open, be more inclusive, think outside the box, accept everybody. Aliza, uh, what would you say to them? Trying to imagine the scenario that someone is talking to you again, chapel. Um, uh. Well, first of all, you're, tonight you're doing Roots, which is 60 yes. to 70 people of this age and stage. Of all ages and stages. Of right. all ages and stages. So you're actually with people who are in their 20s and 30s and big yeah, numbers. So, so here's the interesting thing is that that when we talk about Israel, um, I don't feel like I'm on such an opposite side of this group. And I actually... I know that it, this this image feels deeply distressing to me. I see young people who are trying to express the pain of of what the Zionist dream has cost, and and I can I can share that pain. I, I I deeply I want the state of Israel to exist, and I believe in the state of Israel, and I I dream about a world in which we're all able to to get behind the the dream together, and and all feel like this is a hundred thousand percent right. Um, and clearly these the many young people are, are not there, but. But I think I would I would join them in in the pain of, of you know in the same way that on the during the Passover seder we pour some wine out of our cups to acknowledge that our liberation came at the expense of, of others um, and their pain even even if it was justified we also would re- have regret about that and and I think that's fair and I would want to have that conversation. So you would say talk to me. Okay, Michelle, what would you say to this group of kids? Go to Hartman. You would say go to Hartman. Okay, and Dan, what would you say? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to just go with what, both what Elias and Elisa said, which is that um, we need to have dialogue. We need to have um, maybe even some classes in, in, in history just to see, you know, um, what what um, what things are what things were before. Imagine imagine being Jewish before 1948. Uh, and, uh, and and knowing what the reality of the world is, and even after 1948. Yes, I would say very simply the most magical words and the most important words, which are, go to Israel. Mm-hmm. I would say go yeah. to Israel. I would say that any issues you have, Israelis have. And the best, and here's what I would say, and this is my core message to them. Um, any thinking person who loves Israel and loves Judaism and loves human beings and loves the values of the Torah, right? Uh, which include self-preservation and never again, and which include, uh, like in our portion today, remember you were a stranger in the land of Egypt, so have compassion for those who are vulnerable, right? Our Torah contains multitudes. It contains self-preservation, never again. Um, I, think about, I think about Scott Black, who is such a strong Zionist. And every time, whenever you talk to Scott Black about like, where does, where does your love of Israel come from, he takes out, uh, describes the picture we've all seen of the Nazi guard uh, pointing a gun at a young Jewish child. That a- epic and iconic picture of total Jewish vulnerability. And he says, that's why Israel, and, and it's part of our Torah to never have that Jewish boy uh, have a gun pointed at him again, right? And read the portion today, Kitese, you were a stranger and you were a slave, so have compassion for the stranger and the vulnerable and the widow and the orphan. That's also in our Torah. And so anybody who holds all that, and lives in the world and lives in Israel, looks at Israel, would have complexity. And my core message to this group is don't let your complexity keep you from Israel. Take your complexity to Israel and engage your complexity in Israel. And actually talk to real people who live in Israel. Talk to real Israelis. Talk to real uh, Palestinians. Talk to real, and when you go to Israel, um, 
then you just see it's a lot more complex. So that's why I would say the story to Israel. Let's talk about Yehuda Cursor piece. Um, this is a, a great hour and a half a lecture, which I'm going to try to reduce and distill into three minutes uh, before we before we talk about it. Right? He Yehuda Kurtzer does not mention Danny, but as as I interpret his whole jam here, it's a, it's a very thoughtful response to Danny. Here's what he does. He talks about the idea of an idea, the idea of an idea as a north uh, as a north pole, the idea of an idea as a moral compass that organizes thinking and that mobilizes action. And, and he says that the thing that makes an idea a, a North Pole idea, a moral compass idea, a galvanizing idea, it has to be short, sweet, and simple, to the point, and has to be so passionate and compelling that it galvanizes action. So he gives us, in his lecture, again, this is the hour and a half part of the three minutes, he first talks about rabbinic Judaism as a big idea, and his big idea in rabbinic Judaism, and he has a bunch of sources here, says it could be a whole separate class, is that learning is awesome because it leads to doing, right? Learning, in the end, changes the world, right? And he, he brings up a bunch of sources, but the question of among the sages, we all know this, and what's greater, learning or doing? One says learning, one says doing, and the answer is learning because it leads to doing, right? And that that's the rabbinic idea. If you learn, you'll change the world, okay? Then he brings sources about what's the idea about America, and this was, I just thought this was about the single most helpful source that I've seen in explaining America today, uh, a source from 1850, who says there's actually two big American ideas. Uh, one is that every person counts, and therefore that leads to a multiracial democracy. If you're a citizen in America, you get a vote, and whoever gets the most votes wins, and that means multiracial democracy, that's one idea. And the other is, no, uh, white aristocracy, that some people count more than others. White people who are landowners count more than others, and therefore what we need is a white aristocracy, and that's in creative tension with multiracial democracy, and that was the case at the founding of our country, that was the case in 1861 to 1865, that is obviously the case today. Are we a multiracial democracy where every vote counts? Are we a white aristocracy where some votes count more, some votes count less, and some people have to remain in power? That's a living tension, okay? Now he talks about what is the idea of Zionism? What's the galvanizing North Pole idea of Zionism? And I just want to go through this real quick and show you the sources. Um, and the short answer is that the, the animating idea of Zionism, the North Pole idea, the idea of Zionism, the Zionist idea is it's about dreaming. It's about dreaming. It's tied to dreaming of a world that is not yet here, that is going to be a better world. So he says, we're on page, uh, source 10 of the Danny, uh, of the Yehuda Kurtzer piece. This is um, Hertz, Naftali Hertzimber's Hatikva. The, the words that we sing, Kolol Balev Panima Nefesh Yehudi Homiyah, Yehuda points out that's, um, that's in the subjunctive tense, namely, that is dreaming. Um, as long as his heart is within, the soul of the Jew still yearns, and onward towards the east, ends of the east, his eye still looks towards Zion. Our hope is not yet lost, the ancient hope, to return to the land of our fathers, the city where David encamped. That Hatikva is about a dream of somebody who's not yet in Israel to be in Israel. It's about dreaming. And then if you look at um, the next text, which is Chernikovsky, um, which is source 11, Anima Amin, he says, rejoice, rejoice now in the dreams 
I am the dreamer, am he who speaks. Um, and in it, it's a bunch of dreams. My soul still yearns for freedom. Rejoice, for I have faith and friendship. Um, it's, um, it's about sahaki, sahaki, ahachalomot. Rejoice, rejoice in dreams. And then he goes back to the basic source in the Bible, last text, which is Psalm 126. It's about dreams, the Song of Ascents. When the Lord restores the fortunes of Zion, we see it as in a dream. Um, we were like dreamers. Danny's piece is that Zionism, the animating idea of Zionism, is it used to be about dreaming, about dreaming of a different world and dreaming of a better world. And that what has happened to Zionism, this is Yehuda's piece, is that it became a loyalty test instead of a dreaming project. Uh, Zionism is, you know, you're with the program or you're not with the program. And Danny said he thought that that is when the, the Jewish people made that decision. Zionism is not about dreaming. It's about loyalty. We lost the people who have legitimate concerns. And they're still going to dream about justice. And they're still going to dream about fairness. And they're still going to dream about treatment of the vulnerable, which, by the way, we want them to do. Read the Torah today, right? Um, and since they can't find a space in the organized Jewish community to do it because of the loyalty test, therefore they're going to keep dreaming. And, and Yehuda's point in the lecture is if we want to reclaim Zionism, we need to make it a safe space, not just a big tent, but a safe space for dreaming again. That's Yehuda Kirchner. So, dear colleagues, thoughts and comments. Lord Nesson, I'll start with you this time. Um. I love this year in Malot, you know, because we are we are dreamers, you know, every day. Uh, and um, you know, when we say Shira Malot at the end of Birkana Mazon, um, and it just um, to me, I imagine Israel still as a place where um, almost mythological. I mean, I've been there many times. I know it's not a mythological place, and I know that it has, and I know historically and politically, uh, it's not an easy place to live. But it's still. It still feels like uh, it's, not, it's not about thought, it's about feeling, and it still feels to me like a magical place and a place in which we can still, that we, that we still dream every day that it will be the place from whence um, a better world will emerge for the entire planet. Michelle. So I, I find Yehuda's um, pairing of America with Israel to be very hopeful because I think think that, I, I'm not sure I agree with him entirely that the two paradigms that we set up are the only story of America. I actually think America was very much about dreaming and very much about building that city on the hill, the new Jerusalem here. And when in American culture, we have lost that sense that our dreaming can have traction, that those dreams can come to be realized here, we're reaching the current cultural crisis that we're experiencing today. It's really helpful to think about that and grasp that on as I think about anybody who is feeling sort of dis disinvited <laughs> in terms of the Zionist um, conversation because in the same way that so many of us are so just disconnected from the sense of possibility that anything could change, and therefore, on the American front, you you lose that sense of belonging 
I, I think so too. If you, if, if Zionism is meant to be that dream and it has stopped dreaming, then you don't see a space for yourself. And so the only thing you can do, why is it that in college I said, I believe in, in women's equality? I mean, obviously, right? But I'm not a feminist. Why did I say that? Because feminism of the time when I was in college was being wielded as a cudgel rather than as a constructive place where I could see my ideals fulfilled. And, and I think that this insight that we... It's funny, I asked Yehuda when I was at Hartman, like, could we have another word? Could we just have another, another word? For because what? For Zionism. Because it feels to me like there are so many young people who do believe in the goals and values of aspirations of what Israel is accomplishing at this very moment, including the grappling with the complexity and the challenges that Israel has. But Zionism is so, is so triggering for so many in the same way that feminism was for me. And he argued, and, and I'm really sitting with this, and I'm sitting with this, he argued, no, actually what we need to do is reclaim the word Zionism to have it not be that litmus test that we, you know, you must think X or Y, but rather that Zionism becomes something that we can invest with new meaning. And, and I'm holding that. I think that's a really important conversation here that he's opened. I'll ask you next because I want to give a reason to yes, yes, I agree with that. A uh, couple of, uh, two things I want to say. The first one is that, Wes, you are brilliant. Seriously. Can you, you are, say more? You are brilliant. <laughs> you are very thoughtful and you are amazing how you include everybody here in the, in the, in the class and uh, it, it's a blessing to be your colleague oh, and I learn from did, you. Did, did, thank you. Now, thank that you. being said, <laughs> that being said, you said at the beginning we are going to have a dialogue among us. And when you were describing you, the cursor, you were looking at the people here. No, 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 no. They are not part of the class from 8.30 to 9.30. No, no, uh, so just for the future, look at us, you know, yes, because yes. I feel left out. It's rabbinical school that I okay. cannot have my own <laughs> thoughts about this. Just a joke. Anyways, um, dreaming. All of us who are in Shabbat Alai, every year, every Friday, we end with Salam. Salam is a song written by Sheva, an Israeli-Palestinian rock band, that it says, Odiabo Shalom Aleinu, Aleinu, we are called Olam Salam Shalom. Both languages, Arabic and Hebrew, dreaming of a future of peace. Liotam Chofshi Ve'artzeinu, like Atikva says, you know, be free in our own land but also Salam. So the dreaming doesn't end. Thank you, Alex. Uh, I love Yehuda's perspective, large part because I think when Zionism is a dream and we can get back into that, that's something that everyone can share. And that's something where, where young people who have criticism, where older people who have criticism, uh, where all of us can get in on this dream. And I, I think one of the things that came up for me looking at these sources is that so much of our Zionist dream has been built on an us versus the world, and everyone else is out to get us. And I think that we've internalized some of that conflict, and we have to, our dream has to expand to not be an oppositional dream, but to be a dream that allows for collaboration. Aliza, mm. I, I want to put some of these strands together and, and ask one other question. You know, um, Dan talks about the importance of history, and Elias talks about the three million people who don't live in, um, three million Jews who don't live in Israel or America who would never think of being anti-Zionist. 
Um, and in a way, what I'm hearing is that the current disconnect between rising Jewish generation in Israel is a symptom of our success, a wild success in America as Jews. Um, so how do people, without a sense of Jewish vulnerability, really, I mean, yes, anti-Semitism is rising, and yes, Pittsburgh, okay, but, but, but the people who are on page four of the handout, they, they basically feel very safe here. Like the Holocaust is really ancient history. So like when I think, if you ask me, just me, my heart, like what's your, what's your Zionist dream? It's a place where Jews are safe, where there can never be another frickin' Holocaust ever again. And, and I, you know, I go to Israel five times a year to see my father, and the language I hear on the streets more than English is French. It's real. It's real. Today, today, I was in Israel last month, and the language you hear if you're waiting to get a cup of coffee on Emek Rafaim, the language you hear if it's not Hebrew is French. French, today, today, um, because French Jews feel not safe, and they go to Israel. And, and, and so to me, the like, points one, two, three of the dream are no Holocaust ever again. Yes, also kindness, and yes, also justice, and yes, also compassion to the vulnerable, and yes, and yes, but no Holocaust is points one, two, and three for me of my dream. And my question is, how do you talk to a generation that just doesn't feel that in its history? So I think that that can't, I, I think that we have to get out of the, the trauma mindset. I, I think that we have to, I, I don't think they're, gonna, they're not going to get there. They're, unless they have that experience, I don't think they're going to get there. Um, and and it's a challenge. It's something that, you know, as we've been thinking about our curriculum in the middle school and high school programs here, we've been thinking about starting to add into our, our curriculum modern Israeli history and actually talking about the 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 real battles and the real challenges and the real adversities and the and the actual history that has created our, our Jewish state, but it's hard. Mm. Well, Work is on. Yeah, what, what, oh, no, I, I was just going to make it worse because Please. I was going to say that for, yeah. for our young people actually on campus, right, it's not just that they don't have that sense of history. It's that actually identifying as a Zionist, as a proud lover of Israel, actually puts them at risk today. Yeah, I can say, yeah, I personally experienced it there. Please. Yeah, oh, yeah, I know, you know, when Emma was with Jordan in, in California. Oh, yeah. yeah. When Emma was out in, uh, you know, at USC, there was a lot of... Then you got to speak oh, louder. Okay. You're like... No, the microphone is only for the live stream. Yeah. yeah. You're like the low talker Sorry. there, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> you saw the Seinfeld on Aaron, the low talker? You're Aaron, the low talker, so be a high talker. You know, when Emma was out in uh, at USC, um, you know, um, once we go to Hillel or Chabad, there was, there was a lot of anti-Semitism on campus to the fact that it was actually frightening. Um, and, and people experience that we've over the past four or five years we've heard that time and time and time again right so we have a lot of work to do um, there's no graceful pivot to a song but if you would um, sing us a song that can give us some strength and some space to think <laughs> Thank you. 
Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Thank you. Thank you again, guys. So again, we're new with this. We've, we're just doing this for the first time. But the idea now is uh, I would love to hear any people who have thoughts to share on what you've just heard, the articles that we've read, the conversation we just had. So David Phillips would love your voice. And because of... Uh, the live stream, if you can speak into the microphone so our friends who are watching on live stream can also hear you. David Phillips. Uh, I'll try to confine what I'm going to say to one hour or, 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 or um, No, I'm, 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 I'm saying this really because I've been on the front lines for almost 50 years and particularly in the law school where I teach. In the law school where I teach, which is a very progressive law school, anti-Zionism is very much the case. And the leaders of this are frequently, if you... Students for Justice in Palestine are students who were born Jewish, or at least were somewhat born Jewish. So one, one comment I have to say is that uh, these students do not have a sense of Jewish peoplehood. And that is a missing ingredient. They see themselves born into a religion, but not part of a people. If you feel yourself part of a people, you may disagree with what Israel does in Gaza or what Israel does here or there or whatever, but you're still in favor of the Jewish people having a right to a homeland. They do not identify as people. The one factor, and I'm not saying it's the only factor, and uh, I'm saying this reluctantly in a, in a public audience, is many of these students come from intermarried homes predominantly raised in the reform movement. And they simply don't feel that was a religion because one of their parents, but they don't feel they're part of a people. The second comment I'd make, and I said this years ago in an opinion piece in the Jewish Advocate, no one picked up on it. And uh, I heard Anita saying something before One problem is that when these students go to college, they are, to a predominant degree, going to be confronted with courses on the Middle East, if they take one, which are very much anti-Israel, taught by Arabists. And if you look at the reading lists they're given, they're not given Benny Morris about what happened in 1948, that is, bad things happened during war. They're given Ilan Papet, uh, people who essentially say the whole Zionist idea was to throw the Arabs out of what was then historic Palestine. 
my <coughs> one one I won't say it's a complete solution, but it does seem to me the Jewish community owes Jewish students who are going to go to college in high school a much more realistic history of what happened in 1948. And that is, uh, you may not teach a 10-year-old this, but you can teach a 16-year-old what what happened, were, were, were there Arabs that were thrown out, et cetera, et cetera, but a Benny Morris view that it, there was a war, Israel was attacked, da, 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 et cetera. And then when they get to college, they're not confronted with this as some kind of novel idea. So the, the last point, because I, I don't want to stick to the hour, is uh, Jewish students, like all other students, want to fit in. And right now, if you go to a college campus, uh, the people who fit in are BIPOC uh, or <laughs> blacks, indigenous, people of color, and, and Jews are defined out of that for LGBTQ. And, uh, and, and they want to fit in. And, and, and expressing Zionism is not something that enables you to fit in. Thank you. Uh, thank you, David, and, uh, and thank you for being on the front lines of this very significant challenge for our people. Uh, Frank Aronson and then Mickey. Let me be brief. Um, I don't know if anybody saw the Wall Street Journal yesterday, but every Friday on their first op-ed page is a, is a column called, um, it's a religion column, Houses of Worship it's called. Yesterday's was written by Mayor Soloveitchik, who is the senior rabbi of Sharif Israel in New York City. He's one of the great uh, modern Orthodox thinkers in this country. He wrote a piece about Israel which was really inspiring. It wasn't a whitewash but it was really inspiring, and I commend it to everybody. The second thing is, my family and I are going to be going on the Temple Emanuel Israel trip uh, at the end of this year, and when I mentioned it to my grandchildren, the, the three who are in this part of the country, the older three, they jumped at it and really were excited about going. So it isn't all what we're seeing. Now, what can happen between, between now and college, interesting question, but we're, we shall see what happens here. Frank, uh, Mickey. Um, I think we have to help the students with what they see as the core issue under which they're, uh, for which they're under attack. Uh, and when you talk to the students, the core issue is that the opposition is telling them that Jews are not indigenous to Israel. And we need to help them on this. Uh, obviously, the history, the language, the archaeology, they know people are regard the genetics part as totally third rail and are unwilling to uh, to touch it. The opposition tells them, yes, there were Jews, but they died out and you have nothing to do with them. Uh, you, you have no connection to them. And unless we attack, unless we provide them with a defense on those issues and educate them on those issues, they're going to lose. Uh, if they're regard, If the Jews are regarded as indigenous in Israel, then you can make the arguments about self-determination, etc. If you don't deal with the indigenous issues, you're getting nowhere. And uh, when I wrote in the Times of Israel about the Abraham Accords, I pointed out that the 
the crucial advance of the Accords was that the uh, you had Muslim nations accepting and stating that they believed Israel was in, the Jews were indigenous. 